ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to A Big Country. My name's Clint Jasper. Today we meet the Tasmanian farmer who has funding to plant 10,000 native trees and shrubs a day as part of an important biodiversity project. A ballet dancer returns from a successful stint in Romania to teach dance to students in central Queensland because, as he says, outback kids deserve opportunities too. And we meet Wombat Guy, saving the species from a deadly skin condition. Here is where a very, very sick mangy wombat lives. So it's using this burrow very frequently. And in order to get in, kind of have to act like a wombat. But first today, we go inside Kuma Correctional Facility to find prisoners who are learning a lot about themselves by training companion dogs. In a place which is notorious for monotony, experts say having a responsibility can be profound, especially if it's one that barks. A select group of inmates at the Kuma Correctional Facility in the Snowy Mountains have been tasked with rehabilitating and caring for dogs which would normally go to the pound. The program started about four months ago. It's essentially an in-prison pound run by the inmates. For privacy reasons, inmates in this story are not identified by their real names. I'm Floss Adams and I've been granted access to the low security prison in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains to see firsthand what sort of impact the prison pound is having. Josh is an inmate at the Kuma Correctional Facility and is involved in caring for the dogs. He says the canines have become a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Teach him to sit, walk on a lead beside us. Um, yeah, lay down, so very, very good. Awesome. And what was it like before Bruno? What, what did you have to look forward to while being here? Oh, we, we just get up, we do ground maintenance, we walk after the yards. Then we got the dogs in the meantime too, so it's a pretty full on day, which is, yeah, it's very good being down here. We learn a lot, so take life skills home when we go home, so it's been very good. And, and what's, so what's the process like? What do you guys do throughout the day? Is it a whole day it takes of training and caring for them or run, yeah, run so me we, through it? We, got a, we put in a good couple of hours um, of a morning, we'll get them out, um, clean their cages out, and then a couple of the boys will take them outside, feed them, a couple of us will stay near, mop their cages out, do their water, their food, then we'll take them into the yard, give them a run. Um, then about 10, 10, 20, 10, 11 o'clock, we'll take them for a walk up to the paddocks up there. And that's when we start our training with them. Yeah. So, yeah, we spent a good hour with them training on the wings. The program is a collaboration between the prison and the Snowy Monero Regional Council. It's taken countless hours of organising between senior ranger Sarah Davis and overseer at the prison, Luke Bedford. Luke is known by the inmates as Mr Bedford. He says the program has been a success. Uh, so obviously a lot of the guys have families and children and pets of their own at home uh, so they can feel like quite isolated within the centre. It just gives them a bit of an outlet, it gives them a, an opportunity to sort of care for something whilst they're inside. I have personally seen a change in the, in the inmates that I've worked with. 
and I've worked with a couple of inmates for quite some time and then introducing this program, like the turnaround in their behaviour is huge. Shake. Adam Shake. is another inmate who is a part of the program. Good boy, hey? Let's go. Come on. Let's go. He's a bit of a leader among his fellow inmates who are involved. Whiskey, come here, to go. come here, go. High five. That's not a high five. Uh, unfortunately, there's lots of mental health issues within the system. So to be able to run the dog program here, uh, you know, it, you're having a bad day, you can take the dog for a walk. Everything goes out the, you know, out the out the window. So to be able to help the dog progress, you know, if they've got some issues, you know, get rid of them issues, lead training, you know, not jumping on kids, stuff like that, uh, to be able to do that to help the dog get that forever home and then what we normally do is have an interview with the people that are wanting to adopt the dog so, you know, we can see how the dog reacts with that family and we can tell ourselves that, you know, this is the right home for the dog. So, yeah, to see them then when they leave, you know, some of the boys have even had a tear in their eye, you know, we don't really want to see them go because obviously they're family to us as well but it's good knowing that they're going to go home to have that forever home. Let's go. Where's Tango? Whiskey, come on, go. Associate Professor in Criminology and Justice at RMIT University, Dr Marietta Martinovic, has been involved in many in-prison programs over the last decade. She says it's hard to prove if programs like the one at the Cooma Correctional Facility reduces recidivism rates, but she says they definitely help. Because there are so many different factors which affect whether a person re-engages in criminal activity. At the same time, these types of programs are incredibly important in prison settings and have huge benefits for people who are incarcerated. Yeah, I guess, can you break down the, the importance, right, to, to these um, inmates to, to have something like that to look forward to every day? Like, what kind of direction may that send them in their whole uh, prison life and way of being while being locked up? Look, a lot of people in prisons have very low self-confidence and self-esteem and you know, describe the time in prison as, you know, the lowest that they have been. And, you know, everything that they've had positive going on in their life seems to not exist anymore um, when they exit the prison systems. So we're talking about, you know, this very difficult um, impact of being incarcerated, feeling lonely, feeling helpless, feeling I can't do anything positive to, oh, wow, I can do something positive. I can actually take care of something or someone. Or, and it then propels them to think I should work harder at reestablishing my relationship with my mum, with my son, with my... Do you see what I mean? So it's really powerful stuff. Inmate Adam is finding the dog training program has certainly given him a boost. It was good to be able to help out um, and then bring other boys into the program as well. It gives them a bit of responsibility. So it's, it's been really rewarding even for myself to be able to see boys come through the program better themselves. In a studio in Emerald Central Queensland, Douglas Stewart is instructing students. It's a far cry from the Romanian theatres he's used to dancing in, but for Douglas, it's equally as important. Mum, dad, minors, you know, yes. mum's a minor engineer, dad's a mechanical engineer, how you get a ballet dancer out of that? No one knows. <laughs> Douglas grew up in Weeper in far north Queensland. 
He knows all too well just how essential it is to have access to the arts. He started dancing at just five years old and his passion saw him study ballet in England, eventually landing a role with the Romanian ballet where he worked for four and a half years. Yeah, it was quite a journey and ups and downs. You know, you have a lot of injuries and things like that. Some people are very lucky and don't have a, any injuries throughout their life, but I think I had one every other second, third year or something like that. So, But again, having that ecstasy of the audience applauding just for you know yourself doing a solo, because when you're part of Corte Ballet, you're going, oh yeah, they're clapping for everyone. It's like, it's a good feeling. But then when you finish a solo yourself, you're giving all, you're all out there, um, and then everyone's standing on their feet, giving you an ovation. That's something you can't quite explain to most people. He's now turned those skills into teaching in Emerald and even expanding a local dance school's classes to Springshaw, a smaller nearby town. I think that's something that I think is really important is giving the kids the opportunity because, again, I came from a little country town in Weeper. Um, you don't really have anything out there. So just having something other than soccer and cricket and things like that really open it up to kids... When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, his dance company, run by the Romanian government, wasn't able to perform, meaning dancers weren't paid. So Douglas returned to Australia in 2020, moving to Blackwater where his parents lived. But he missed the stage, so he contacted the Emerald Academy of Dance to use their studio to practice in exchange for teaching some classes. Jane Davis, who runs the dance school, welcomed the idea. Yes, um, well, Douglas yeah, emailed us and said um, during COVID that he had been brought back to Australia and he needed somewhere to rehearse. He was at the peak of his career. So he said, if you let me use my studio, I'll give you hand with classes or I'll do whatever you need. And we went, oh, wow, that's exciting because we love having guest teachers and people come. And we, and we thought, why is he coming to Emerald? Jane says it helps kids to see others with careers in dance. Definitely, like they can see that it's achievable for anyone. You don't have to live in a country area. And like I said, we often have people say to our teachers, why are you still in Emerald? And they say, because why are the Emerald children any less deserving than the city children of having a quality teacher? Yes, well, we have students from, um, the, we actually have a satellite studio in Springshaw that Douglas teaches at once a week, as well as Emerald. So that's his little project in Springshaw. And we have students come from Springshaw and Thierry and Claremont, Blackwater, and the smaller towns in between their places west of Gindi. Um, so really it is quite a, a big regional, we're a little bit of a hub for the kids that want to do something at this level. For Douglas, he wants to see dance and ballet just as available in towns as common sports like footy or cricket. Even if it's only one out of, you know, hundred or something like that that want to become a dancer. It's given them that push in the right direction to try those sorts of things. I think what I would like though um, in this sort of scene is just a little bit more involvement in other companies and things like that, you know. Um, my main thing, because I was in Weeper um, when we moved to Brisbane, that's when my sort of learning career really took off because we had so many more opportunities, you had so much input from, you know, you go to QPAC, you get travelling companies, you know. Um, I think 
one of my biggest things was we were just an extra in the Paris Opera Ballet when they came. You know, we just stand there for a whole 30 minutes holding a fan or something like that, but you're on stage with all these incredible professional dancers and they give you inspiration to, you know, um, practice things and maybe try even develop your skills further and stuff like that. Um, they just don't quite get that out here, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, I would like, you know, you have your superstars of your football come out, say good day to the kids and things like that. I think if we had a little bit more involvement with, um, you know, more recognised people in this industry coming and doing those sorts of things, um, maybe then ballet dance in general would get a little bit more recognition. That's Douglas Stewart, a ballet teacher from Emerald in Queensland who's returned from a successful few years with the Romanian Ballet with Central Queensland reporter Jasmine Hines. You can find our stories online by going to abc.net.au. Just look for A Big Country. Still to come, the wombat guy who raised enough money on social media to devote his full-time energy to treating a skin condition in wombats. Before that, let's head to Tasmania, where a revegetation project is planting a staggering number of trees each day. Uh, so we're going up probably about halfway on the farm to a section where they're um, planting along our back boundary. Probably demonstrative of like the large kind of typical bushland that we have on the farm. We've just loaded up the side-by-side -side with some large boxes of native seedlings, about 15 species all up. And these are species that match the farm's remnant vegetation. And we're dropping them off to a small team of professional tree planters working across the property that sits alongside the Meander River. And they have their work cut out. 10,000 trees a day across 100 hectares and seven different planting zones. Farmer Marcus James, who's sitting beside me, admits it's been a pretty ambitious schedule. Yeah, that's hard work. Um, it's rocky, it's hilly, but they've been really, um, really impressed by the, the preparation. So the ground has actually been really well prepared um, with what's called mole ploughing. So we haven't deep ripped, so part of the, uh, the obligations are not to deep rip, So, which a lot of people will say, you know, you need to deep rip this. So this is actually only move the surface soil up into a mound and there isn't a, a big rip line underneath. That allows us to protect existing trees, so you're not going through, ripping through root structure. On those hills we don't, we've minimised erosion risks by not having big rip lines through. We're not a plantation looking for rapid growth, so we want survivability. And actually, even if they have a hard life and a hard start, but they survive, then the right ones are surviving. So you sort of, you're not looking for this, how much growth can we have in five years? You know, what's the return on the tree growth? We're actually trying to get them to, to survive for a hundred years or, you know, hundreds of years. So it's a different, you've got to look at the project differently. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith, and I'm out to see Marcus James here at Junction Farm. Just got some temporary fencing at the moment because we're racing planting ahead of planting wild lambing at the moment. It's, try, it's hard to coordinate 20 kilometres of fencing and 110,000 trees and lambing and calving all at the same time, but we're trying. Over the next 10 years, this farm will receive around $2 million to plant the mixed species of trees, 
build new fences and remove infestations of noxious weeds like gorse and hawthorn. And it's following a set of guidelines set up by Australian National University in conjunction with NRM North to protect and enhance remnant vegetation. So you'll see the new fencing up here along the top which separates. So what we've done is separate. I often explain we're doing shelter belts on steroids. So if you look here we've planted we've planted all the hilltop that surrounds our um, productive paddock and creates almost an enclosure all the way around. And even behind us you'll see there's a um we've created a little like avenue of pasture in between trees. So almost all our paddocks now, this is where it sort of works both we're by you know we're increasing biodiversity, but we think we're also improving our paddocks. So we're getting the benefits of shelter belt protection. And a lot of our paddock our paddocks now have tree shelter in all different corners. So it doesn't matter where the wind comes from. Um, I'll have shelter. I'll have shelter. And so you can imagine this paddock, they could be up here and if it's horrible over here, they can just go 50 metres down there and go into a, a tree enclosed avenue. And all the research shows that you get actually improved pasture growth, you know, benefits into the, from shelter belts. And we're kind of doing that while doing large scale biodiversity on the other side of the shelter. So it's like an endless shelter belt. We've pulled up to the top of the ridge where you've got a, a team of tree planters working in the background. Tell me a little bit about what we're looking at. So we're looking at our back, our back boundary. It's in an area that, doesn't, that currently doesn't have trees. It's a mixture of introduced species grasses and some native grasses. It's not a highly productive area and we have prepared the ground for tree planting with minimal spraying, so just a mechanical removal of turning over the soil, and we've left the inter-row or the native grasses and the grasses in between the planting rows um, in the hope that any native animal that wants to eat the plants will choose to eat the grass instead while the plants grow. Are you looking at your farm differently to what you were just a couple of years ago because of this? I think definitely. I mean, probably not idealistically. Like, we, this is kind of where we would have liked to have been. We'd love to always have done this project. It wasn't feasible. It's just not a scale that we would have been able to achieve. You know, I'm thinking about our lifetime and the, our kids, they're going to take, you know, we'll hopefully have this farm. It's allowed us to take a vision that we would have for this property, um, how we wanted to manage the productive land and the native bushland, how we wanted to interact that business with our other activities from our tourism operations and um, and also even from an animal animal welfare point of view, like we're creating these shelter belts and stuff. So exploring the market that enables a farmer to do this type of work, because it's not revenue generating. We've, we've taken 800 hectares of our property. You know, it's costing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to do. It wasn't something that we could do economically without someone valuing what we were doing. So is it your hope that you know, when this project is completed and the, the trees and the shrubs and the grasses become established, that big business will invest in farms and farmers like yourself who are going that extra step to build biodiversity. Yeah, I think so. Big business and some big businesses are investing in farms. So I think also what I hope this does is realise that we're only a small farm, we're a family farm, you know, husband and wife, three, four kids, that it means that the small farmer can do it too. 
and see that, you know, it's not just big corporates coming in saying, well, we, we can do it this way because we've got the capital to do it and we've got the time and the money to do it. This shows that you can actually do a project like this in your small farm and be part of that solution. Right now, we are on the St Albans Common, which is on dark and young country in the Hawkesbury. Uh, there are plenty of wombats living around this area. And at the moment, there's only a few mangy ones. I'd say maybe three or four. So My name is Toby Davidson. I'm the wombat guy, and I treat wombats for a disease called mange. I've been doing this since 2015, um, and it's taken up most of my life over those years. Tell me, what do you look out for when you're driving? I'm also scanning the horizon and the roadside for wombats that might be out during the day because when they have mange, they stop being nocturnal. So if I see a wombat that's out during the day, I know it's likely sick and then I can hop out and help it. The thing that got me into treating wombats with mange is when I was on a bushwalk with my dad at a very young age. I was maybe six or seven. Um, and we came across the first wombat that I had ever seen in my life. Um, being seven, I tried to sneak up on it, so I crept through the, through the grass and tried to get as close as possible. Um, and by the time I was, you know, about a metre away from it, it looked up at me and I looked down at it and I just saw these, like, bleeding, cracked scabs around its eyes. And I screamed and I ran back to my dad and the wombat ran straight down its burrow and... Um, I've been captivated ever since, really. So I now know that that was mange. So mange is an introduced parasite that is 100% fatal to wombats. It makes them lose their hair and itch a lot, and then eventually they die from secondary infections. So my average day in the field involves finding wombats that have mange and giving them medicine to help them get better. I also use nighttime infrared cameras to monitor their progress over the weeks and months that I treat them. I'm just filling up a burrow flap at the moment. So a burrow flap is like a little doggy door that you put on the front of a wombat burrow. When they enter and leave, it gives them medicine passively. So this is a really important tool to making sure that a wombat gets treatment every week for mage. What I do with a wombat burrow flap is I put them in front of a burrow that a mangy wombat is living in, and then once a week I fill up that medicine so that the wombat can get its weekly um, dose. This wombat has almost finished treatment. It's sort of just getting that last little bit at the end to make sure that all the mange mites are completely gone out of its system. So I've only used a really small amount there. But yeah, usually I just like sit out here on sunset and this, this mum and this bub just come out and say hello. It's, it's magical, yeah. So I recently put up a GoFundMe to help pay for wombat mange medicine. Um, it went viral online and to date I've raised about $70,000. So that's meant I've been able to quit my day job that I've been using to pay for all of this medicine. And now I'm basically catching wombats almost full time. Um, I'm treating 31 wombats with mange at the moment. Wombats don't really like doing as they're told. 
So um, in order to make it walk directly under this flap, you know, I've put in these logs just to make sure it comes out and gets the treatment it needs. Otherwise, you know, they'll just flip them straight over and be on with their day. Here is where a very, very sick mangy wombat lives. So it's using this burrow very frequently. And in order to get in, kind of have to act like a wombat. But just in here is where I've put up my um, infrared camera. So that spies on the wombat at night. And I can keep up to date with how it's progressing in its treatment. My goal is to help every single mangy wombat in my area of the Hawkesbury. And I'm on my way there. The Wombat Guy, Tony Davidson, on the Hawkesbury outside Sydney. And the reporter was Declan Bowering. You can find this story online at abc.net.au. Just look for the Big Country page. My thanks to Serena Locke for production this week. I'll be back next week. Talk to you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.